All right, book of Romans, Romans chapter 5. Have that open. We'll be making reference to it over and over. Remember, we're in Romans chapter 5. Uh, I'm going to try to just not spend too much time in review. But in, we're in Romans chapter 5. Um, obviously, we made Romans chapter 5, verse 12, uh, one of the memory verses for the uh, memory app. And uh, hopefully people are using it, and hopefully it's helping. Uh, Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Wherefore, I should just make y'all say it. Wherefore... As by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Remember, for that is the key, that's the way the King James translates it, for that all have sinned. Remember that for that is where church history, all the fighting is over that phrase, for that. Okay, so that's, that's a good, easy way to remember that part of the verse is just remember for that is where everyone fought about in church history. All right, so the key in this verse is, the main thing to remember is this verse establishes, first of all, how sin entered into the world. And how did sin enter into the world? By one man. And who is that one man? Adam. All right, so we got that. And because of sin entering into the world, what, what did it bring with it? Death. All right, so, so far so good. Sin entered into the world, death entered into the world. Now, someone can deny the concept of sin, but they cannot deny the concept of death. All right, this is very, very important. So death demonstrates that what exists? Sin. All right, that's, that's very good, all right? So, because death exists, right, we know sin exists, but here's the very important point. Death passed upon all men... And the reason everyone dies is because everyone has sinned. Now, remember, some will argue, right, people die because they commit a sin themselves. The only problem with this is that children die, right from the, I mean, all the time, all different ages, right from newborns to, so... Why do they die? Well, some try to argue of an age of accountability, but that doesn't make any sense because if they're not accountable, then why are they dying? If they're dying, then therefore they are accountable and they're a sinner, right? And so how are they a sinner if they've not even had the ability to understand or even know what they're doing? This raises the question. How then are all people sinners? Are all people sinners because of an actual sin they commit are they a sinner because of something else? So this caused us to stop our journey through Romans 5, 12 through 21 and to take a step back and do an intensive theological study on the doctrine of sin. And that is what we have begun, all right? So let's remind ourselves of what we have covered. If you do have any questions, please ask because I want to make sure I make this as clear as I can. The first thing we came up with is a definition of sin. All right, I remember the definition that we gave. <clears throat> okay, all right, I'm hearing it. Let me read it. The definition we gave, uh, we gave for sin. Sin is any failure to conform to the moral law of God and act, attitude, or nature. Sin is any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, or nature. 
We all know act, right? That's something we do. Attitude, that's something inside of us, the way we think, the way we feel, something inside of us. And nature is the very essence of who we are. So we can be guilty. We can be guilty before God. We can commit a sin and, and an action that we commit, an attitude or a thought that we have, and we're guilty and a sinner before God because of the very nature that we possess from Conceived in sin, from conception. We, we have the nature from conception. All right? Everybody got that? By nature, we are the children of wrath. All right? By nature, we are sinners. Okay, everybody got that. So that's very important. Next, we went from the definition and we talked about the origin of sin. Now, I'm not going to go all the way back through this. <clears throat> Remember, the origin of sin is one of the most complicated subjects from a philosophical standpoint, and your brain can just explode and start leaking out the side of your you know, head because, um, wow, what do you even say? Let's, uh, what's the simple way of describing the origin of sin? We can, tr- we can trace it back to Satan, right? Satan, Satan rebelled against God, but ultimately, let's just, we cannot, there's no way to get around this. Ultimately, even though we would say God is not the one who sinned and is not the one who <clears throat> commanded the sin, we can't get away that God somehow, in some way, shape, or form, not only decreed it, not only ordained it, part of his plan. And just to just remind everyone, who created Satan? God. Did he know Satan was going to rebel? Yes. When Satan rebelled, what could have God done? Destroyed him. He did not destroy him. Even if he didn't destroy him, he could have kept him from where? Earth. Now, some believe Satan did not sin until he came into the garden, and that's when he, Satan committed his sin. But even if that's where he did so, who would have known what he was going to do before he did it? God. So God could have stepped in and stopped it. And some would say, well, he didn't want to violate his free will. Okay, so, but even if he didn't want to violate, quote-unquote, his free will, he still knew what he was going to do, so why even create it in the first place? Right? And then once he causes Adam and Eve to sin, what could have God done? He could have destroyed them, because if you eat the day that you eat of it, you will. He could have given them physical death, right? There was a punishment. He doesn't. And then guess what? He allows the world to continue. Now, allowing the world to continue, you can say, well, he allows the world to continue so that he could save some. Like, that doesn't explain why he has allowed it to continue. So ultimately, what do we have to say? The origin of sin, even though it utilizes, we'll use the, the phrase, secondary causes, Satan and men, God obviously knew it was going to happen, and somehow what would we have to say? It's part of his plan. Now, some people don't like to say if I, when I use the term uh, decreed it or ordained it, but doesn't he work all things after the counsel of his will? So, somehow, this is a part of it, all right? Which is hard to wrap, wrap our mind around it, but, but any other, any, all the other attempts to get God off the quote-unquote hook just become philosophically foolish. Does that make sense? All right, so there is the uh, origin. Now, We went from the origin of sin, and then we went to the doctrine of inherited sin. The doctrine of inherited sin. And this is where we ended up last week, all right? The doctrine of inherited sin, all right? Everybody remember this? All right? 
This is the question we're trying to answer. How does the sin of Adam affect us? How does the sin of Adam affect us? Scripture teaches that we inherit sin from Adam in how many ways? How many ways do we inherit sin from Adam? Two. Everybody better... Okay, that, that, that silence is scary. Okay, <laughs> silence scares me, all right? So let me do this again. There are how many ways we inherit sin from Adam? Two. Two. There are how many ways we inherit sin from Adam? Two. All right, okay, I want that to be loud, proud, and, and everyone knows it, okay? We need to know these, all right? Remember, the... That's what the debate of church history was about. Right? This is the debate. Pelagius, how many ways did we inherit sin from Adam? Pelagius, how many ways did we inherit sin from Adam? None. 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 Zero. Zero, 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 zero. Pelagius doesn't believe we inherited in any way. Well, semi... Well, that we could get into that because they, they make a claim, but then they don't really stay consistent with said claim. Yeah. 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 Pelagius' sin only affected whom? Adam. We don't inherit anything from Adam. Yeah, exactly. Okay. All right. Then we could look to Augustine and look at Calvin. All right. But we are making an argument that there are two ways that we inherit sin from Adam. And what is the first way we inherit sin from Adam? We inherit guilt. We inherit guilt. Right? Now, please connect this to the Sunday school lesson. Remember I told you that in our psychology, we know there's something wrong? That we, inherit, we, we know there's something wrong, and we hide, and we try to cover it up? What do we inherently know that something's wrong? We ha- Listen, whether you like it or not, deep, deep down, everyone has a sense of guilt. Everyone feels guilt. That's why psychologists say the number one thing people come to them for is struggle of guilt. Sometimes they don't even know where the guilt stems from. The guilt stems from we're all guilty in Adam. The guilt stems from you are actually guilty. Okay, that's the problem. You're actually guilty. I, can, I, can, I cannot stress that enough, all right? Everybody got that? All right, so very, 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 very important. We, we inherit guilt from Adam. Now, how do we understand this? Listen, we are counted guilty because of Adam's sin. Paul explains the effects of Adam's sin in the following way. Therefore, sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men. Now, this is not the King James. Because... All men sinned. How did we all sin? In Adam. How did we all sin? In Adam. All right? So if your kids are like, I didn't do anything. Yes, you did. Right? Okay? In Adam, you did something wrong. We've all done something wrong. No matter how innocent you proclaim yourself, you're guilty in Adam. Right? We have all sinned in Adam. Everybody got that? Very important. All right? And the reason we know that this has to apply is because everyone dies. Even before they commit an actual, they can die even before they commit an actual sin. 
So it can't be the sin that you commit. So what sin did you commit? You're guilty in Adam. And go back to Romans 5.12. I want you to see this. Romans 5.12. Romans 5.12. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Verse 13. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Okay, so sin was in the world. When did sin get into the world? Genesis 3. When does the law show up? Exodus. All right, so sin is in the world before the law, but where there is no law, what is not imputed? Sin. All right, so, all right, so then guess what? What should that mean? No one should be guilty and no one should die. But what does it say from the next verse? Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of, of him that was to come. Wait a minute. So sin is in the world, but no guilt should be imputed where there is no law, and the law doesn't show up for a very long time. However, people die who hadn't even committed the transgression that Adam had committed. So how do they die? Because they're sinners. How are they a sinner? Well, they can't be a sinner based off anything they do because what's not imputed? No guilt because there's no law. So then how did they sin? In Adam. That's that's the way... So we inherit that guilt. Everyone is guilty in Adam. Whether you like it or not, that's the way... It is, that's just the way it is, all right? We spend a lot of time with that, correct? All right. Does anybody need me to to make anything, explain that? Right? I'll I'll state it this way. The conclusion to be drawn from the verses in Romans 5, 12 and following, um, the, the conclusion to be drawn from these verses is that all members of the human race were represented by Adam in the time of testing in the Garden of Eden. As our representative, Adam sinned, and God counted us guilty as well as Adam. A technical term that is sometimes used in this connection is what word? A technical word to explain all of this. Imputed or imputation or impute. Meaning to think of as belonging to someone and therefore to cause it to belong to that person. Adam's guilt, Adam's sin was imputed to who? All of us. It now seen as belonging to whom? You. Right? You're guilty. I'm guilty. Right? Everybody got that? All right, that's very important. All right. Um, God counted Adam's guilt as belonging to us. And since God is the ultimate judge of all things in the universe, and since his thoughts are always true, Adam's guilt does in fact belong to us. Belongs to you. Belongs to me. God rightly imputed Adam's guilt to us. All right? Any questions there? Yes? All right. Second way. Well, the second way we inherit sin from Adam. The second way. We got the first way. No, everybody's good to go with the first one, right? We inherit the guilt. We're guilty in Adam. That sin, the guilt of that sin belongs to us. Okay. Next. The second. Inherited corruption. Inherited corruption. What does this mean? What do we inherit from Adam? 
not only guilt, a sinful nature, a corrupted nature. In addition to the legal guilt that God imputes to us because of Adam's sin, we inherit a sinful nature because of Adam's sin. This inherited sinful nature is sometimes simply called original sin. I think it should be more precisely called original pollution. Yeah. Well, I don't know if he termed it, but Calvin emphasized this part where Augustine emphasized the the guilt. Uh, Calvin emphasized the, the nature. Because that was, why would he emphasize the nature? Because of his belief of total depravity, right? Okay, so that's why he emphasized that. All right, so make sure we get this. Number one, what do you inherit? Everyone make, say it. What do you inherit first? Guilt. So in Adam, you're guilty. You're guilty. And that's why you'll never get away from a feeling of guilt until you make things right with your creator. And when, you, when things don't feel right in your life, it goes back to a, a deep-rooted guilt that you know you're wrong something's wrong between you and your creator, even if you deny there's a creator, even if you deny that, that is your problem. That's the problem. So many people, there's their fundamental problem. And sometimes when we deal with people, we got to get to the fundamental problem. Well, I don't feel happy. I'm this, I I don't this. Your problem is probably things are not right between you and your creator. And even if you say, well, I'm a Christian, everything's right with my creator. Everything may be right with your creator from your position, but things have to be right between your creator and your fellowship and relationship, or you're still going to have that feeling that something is not right. Okay. Second thing we inherit is a nature. Is a nature. Original pollution. You are born with a corrupt nature. And we've stated this a million times, so let me state it again. You do not become a sinner because you sin. You sin because you are a sinner. What comes first? The sin nature. Sin nature comes first, and then what comes after? The action. The nature first, the action second. Do you have to teach your kids to lie? Do you have to teach your kids to be selfish? Do you have to teach your kids to be mean? No. You don't have to teach them any of the bad behavior. Right? It comes what? Natural. And and sometimes, it's, it's... Now... Sometimes it can bother you as a parent, but sometimes you'll be like, why did you do that, right? Like, I told you 30 times, why did you do that? And sometimes they can't even offer an explanation. I don't know. Well, guess what? Same thing is true of you. Sometimes I'll look at you guys, why did, why did y'all not do that? Uh, okay, right? And look at myself. Why did I do I don't even know. You know. We don't even know. Why? Because there's something inherently inside of all of us. We inherited it. Now, I wish we didn't. But trust me, what's the best proof? What is the absolute best proof that we have a sinful nature? Okay, Nursery is a good way to prove it. That, and I just want you to think about this. This, think, this is just, from a, from a philosophical concept, this blows my mind. Right? If I don't believe in God, then I believe the, book, the Bible was written by men. Now, you would think men would write a moral code that men were capable of following. If I'm going to write a list of rules, 
It's going to be rules that I can keep. Right? Right? But, so we have a book supposedly written by men that contains a moral code that no one can keep. That's mind-boggling. Who would write a book? I'm going to write a book that condemns me. And I can't keep it. And anyone who denies the sinful nature, like any Pelagian, will just be perfect. Nobody can be perfect. Now, there are people who portray, you know, again, uh, you know, there are certain branches of Christianity who claim that they can be sinless, sinless, you know, be sinless and reach sinless perfection. Now, what, I, what bothers me is usually when I've met people in those groups, they say, well, it's possible, but I haven't gotten there. Okay, well, if nobody in your church has gotten there, then what's the point of teaching that you can get there if nobody can ever get there? Because you can't get there. Right? You just name one. I can give you one script. I can just give you a few scriptures and we'd be like, go, can't do that. Especially when Jesus goes and intensifies not th- that the law, remember what is sin? Not just an act. It's an attitude. Well, that, that proves that there's something inherently wrong with us, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, you can narrow it down to two laws and we're still guilty. So that proves there's something wrong inside of me. Correct? If I didn't have that nature, you think I should be able to pull off the moral code, but I can't pull off the moral code, which tells me there's something inherently wrong with me. All right? So, let's look, uh, look at a couple of scriptures here. Uh, go to Psalm 51.5. We'll, we'll just go to Psalm 51, because this is such a powerful passage. When we come to Psalm 51, we all know the story, right? We have King David. What has King David done? Well, he's done a lot of things, right? He has committed adultery, okay? He has uh, tried to cover up that adultery by having the woman's husband come back because uh, now he's committed adultery, finds out that the woman is pregnant. To try to cover up his action, he calls uh, her husband back, thinking that he will engage in physical relations so that they can cover up, uh, you know, how she became pregnant. Uh, The man won't, won't go along with the plan. David tries to get him drunk, Right? That still don't work. After that fails, then what does he do? He sends the man back to the war with a letter. Ultimately, that's going to, that he's going to give to the other, to the commander, that's going to ultimately lead to him being killed. So David ultimately did what? Murder. He murder, he lie, he deceives. I mean, he, 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 I, mean I, I always joke that it's almost like David decided that night he was going to go through the Ten Commandments and break every one. It was almost like, you know what, I'm kind of bored tonight. I'm going to go for all ten. He covets another man's wife. Right? I mean, you just start going through there. Like, he, he's just like, I'm going through all of them. I'm going to break every one I can find. Right? And he, so he messes up. Would everyone agree? Yeah, that's pretty bad, right? Okay. So David messes up. So in Psalm 51, after he's been confronted and exposed, he confesses. Now, please note, sometimes what we do is we say a confess. We have a tendency sometimes as Christians to say a confession is not genuine unless the confession is offered before the person is exposed. Well, if you believe that, then guess whose confession is not genuine? The, the confession we all read and we all preach, well, it's not a genuine one because he only said this because he got caught. Now, is it true that sometimes a confession may not be genuine? Well, put it this way. A confession may not be genuine whether you confess it before you got caught or after you got caught. The genuineness of it does have nothing to do with the timing of it. 
Okay? And guess what? Guess what? Are you, do you really have the ability to determine if a confession is genuine? You really don't. You really don't. Sometimes when, we, when we're the ones doing the confessing, sometimes we can't even for sure know. I mean, we want to believe it's legitimate. We want to believe. But sometimes it's even hard to know because our heart is desperate, desperately wicked and deceitful above so we can deceive even ourselves. But we believe David's confession is genuine, and why do we believe it's genuine? Well, it's in the Bible, so we believe it's genuine. All right, here we go. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, the only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. Now, some people don't like verse 4 because like, wait a minute, man, you didn't just sin against God. You had a man killed, right? So, but the point is, all sin is ultimately against whom? All sin is against God. All sin is ultimately against God. All right? Now, here comes verse 5. Now, some believe verse 5 is an excuse. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, some will try to argue, well, obviously he's not making some argument that his mom committed a sin, right? What is he, what is he, what is he confessing here? He is confessing that he is a sinner, not just in the action that he carried out, that he's a sinner, where? In his very nature, he was conceived in sin. He was, by nature, a child of disobedience. So it's not excusing it. What is this doing? He's confessing the corruption goes beyond the mere act to his very nature. He's confessing that it goes to the very nature. Does that make sense? All right. And so don't view it that way, all right? And I think that's very important, all right? Um, and we, we could read a lot more here. Oh, oh here's another one. Um, just just an, a couple of scriptures I have down here. Go to Psalm 58.3. I believe Psalm 58.3. Psalm 58.3. Everybody there? Psalm 58.3. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they be born. Speaking lies. From, from the womb. From the womb. Right? So, some people say Washington produced liars. No, the womb produces liars. Okay? Conception produces liars. And who's a liar? Every one of you and me and everyone listening, we are liars. Why? Why can't we just... Something as simple as just being honest with ourselves and honest with other people. Why can't we pull that off? Because there's something in our nature that we inherited from Adam. You would think we could be able to pull off just being honest. Like Sometimes people say, I'm an honest person. Are, are you really? Are you really honest? 
Are you truly honest with yourself? Are you truly honest with other people? I mean, again, I, I think the greatest deception is self-deception. We, 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 we're not even honest with ourselves. Ju- jump to the New Testament. Go to Ephesians. I believe it's Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, I believe it's verse 3. Yes, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3. Everybody there? We can go back to verse 2 for context. Um, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2. Wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we, uh, we all had our conversations in time past and the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. All right? By nature, that's what we are. By natures, we, we, I mean, that's just our, our natural makeup. We just have to realize that. That is what we are. We can't get around it. So, we inherited sin two different ways. What are the, what's the first way we inherit it? Guilt. What's the second? Nature. Guilt, guilt and nature. So, I want to make sure you understand this. If you were born and you never committed an actual sin, you'd still be condemned before a holy God because you're guilty in Adam. And guess what? You have a sinful nature that is opposed to God. So even if you never commit an actual sinful act, that's why when people argue that, like, you know, somehow we're responsible for our salvation, like, if, like if you truly believe you could lose your salvation, well, you, you have a sinful nature, so you would just be in a perpetual state of lostness. <laughs> right? Well, that wouldn't even work. That wouldn't even work, yeah. Yeah, because that wouldn't get rid of the nature. There's nothing you can do. Like, there, you've got to have something else uh, to save you other than anything you can do, all right? So, it's very important. Um, the inherited uh, tendency to sin uh, does not mean that all human beings are as bad as they could be, right? Not everyone is as bad as they could be. Total depravity or, or the, an inherited nature doesn't mean everyone's going to run out and commit the exact same sins to the exact same level in the exact same way means our nature is totally corrupt. What we do, well, a lot of different things will impact that. For example, the constraints of civil law, the expectations of family and society, and the conviction of human conscience all provide restraining influences on the sinful tendencies in our hearts. Therefore, by God's common grace, that is by his undeserved favor that is given to all human beings, people have been able to do much good in the areas of education, the development of civilization, science, technological advances, development of beauty and skill and the arts, the development of just laws, general acts of human benevolence and kindness to others. In fact, the more Christian influence there is in a society in general, the more clearly the influence of common grace will be seen in the lives of unbelievers as well. So just make sure we understand that that we have a corrupted nature. It doesn't mean everyone's going to run around and do every wrong that they can because there's things that restrain it. Law, family, society, conscience. Those are a restraining influence. Aren't we glad that they're a restraining influence? We could argue that the Holy Spirit is as well. 
And that's all God's common, common grace. There's a restraining grace. And the reason, a lot of, the reason I have to point this out is some people, if you talk about, well, if everyone has an inherited nature, then why is it just utter chaos in, in society? Well, pretty much already chaos if you pay attention to everything that happens every day. But um, it would be far worse. Once that restraining influence is broken down, then chaos ensues. All right? And that, that is very important. That happens, okay? I mean, good way to, good way to, uh, I've, I've told the story before, but a good way to describe it, I mean, I, I always reference the book, The Lord of the Flies, because what happens when you remove the restraining, then the kids lose all sense of reality. Well, same thing, I've talked about it before. In the history class, we all had to made, make models of the Alamo, right? We made them with sugar cubes, toothpicks, I don't know. We all had to make all these models of the Alamo, Right? And our history teacher decided, I don't know what he did. He was like, peace out. I'll be back in like an hour. And so he leaves all of us in the classroom for an hour. Uh, we were in middle, middle school, yeah, yeah, sixth, seventh grade. It was, uh, okay. And uh, so we're sitting there, and I don't know who did what first, but someone screamed, remember the Alamo, and next thing you know, Pieces of the Alamo started flying all over the room. And so people were turning their desks to the side and you're duck under grabbing parts of your model and throwing at the other people. And it was just absolute, utter chaos. I mean, like, we lost all sense of reality. Like, why? Like, I don't even know what you're thinking. Like, you don't think no one out there is going to hear, like, that the, like it sounds like the Alamo's re- really happening again inside the classroom at Jim Ned and Lawn. Okay, I don't know what was going on. And next thing you know, the door opens... And, you know, you got a handful of Alamo, you know, ready to throw at somebody. And it's like, and next thing you know, because back then you got paddled when you did things wrong. And next thing you know, we're lined up at the principal's office to get the Board of Education to the seat of learning. And uh, it was not, it wasn't, it wasn't very pretty. It wasn't very nice. But it's like, what happened? What's the restraining, what restraining thing was there, was removed, what occurred? Teacher left? And then chaos ensues. That's the way it works. So we're glad for that restraining. Just make sure the restraining doesn't mean that we're not totally depraved. People think totally depraved means everyone will have to do every depraved thing. No, we're capable of doing anything. We may be restrained from carrying that out. But you remove it, you don't know what will happen. You don't know what will happen. I mean, I watched this, I don't know, every, it seemed like every year that was happening in the military, every, every time, and it may happen in, in the squadron Stephen was in as well, but every year, someone would come like, you know what, we need, especially in the medical world, because in the medical world, there's food everywhere, all day, every day. It's like, I don't, I, all we do in the medical world is eat. I don't know why, but uh, there's always food somewhere. But if someone would come up with the idea, you know what, we need a snack bar. Right? And then someone will come up with this great idea, you know, I could buy a bunch of stuff in bulk and then sell it for a little bit more and then nobody has to go to the store and I'll make a, and everyone always thinks that they're going to make some money off said proposition. I could care less. I was just glad that there was food there that I could go get throughout the day. But they had always put there. Now, we all know how this is going to work. It's going to be put in a room somewhere and who's going to be present? No one. So what is it based off of? Honesty, trust. There's a cup there. And then what always happens about six months, four months, three months into the process? More stuff is leaving than money coming in. Because why? There's no restraining there. 
And these are all people you think you should be able to trust. Now, that proves there's something inherently wrong with us. Now, it doesn't mean that everyone's going to run in there and just take everything out in one attempt. No, but the depravity is still seen. Does that make sense? It's just sometimes people really misunderstand inherited nature, that that we're all going to run around and burn buildings down and kill people. No, we all have the potential. When you look at other people going, I can't believe they're doing that, you have the same nature in you. Right? We're always shocked by someone else's sin. I can't believe they did that. That's just unbelievable. Okay, yeah, because you've got a nature that's better than mine? Give me a break. Just yours may show up in a different way. Right? Yes? Okay. Very, very, very important. Now, but in spite of the ability to do good, in many senses of the word, our inherited corruption, our tendency to sin, which we receive from Adam, means that as far as God is concerned, we are not able to do anything that pleases him. Before God, you are incapable of doing anything that pleases him. You are incapable of it. Why? Sinful nature. So anything you do is tainted by sin, right? If we, if we took a glass of water and I just put a little bit of rat poison in it, right? And then I pour it out, do you want any part of that water? Okay. I mean, some of you saying, I mean, we could do an experiment here, okay? We could, we could try it, okay? I could announce a, you know, a special episode of the Theology Central podcast. People at Victory Baptist Church are going to drink some water tainted with rat poison and see how it works out for them, okay? I'm not going to participate. I'll just watch you guys. I don't want any of it because we would feel all the water would be. All right, well, guess what flows out of you? Right? Rat poison tainted sin, okay? That's what comes out of you, right? So, This idea may be seen in two ways. This idea that there's nothing you can do that can please God can be seen in two ways. Are you ready? Number one, in our natures, we totally lack spiritual good before God. In our nature, we we totally lack spiritual good before God. It is not just that some parts of our of us are sinful and other parts are pure. Rather, every part of our being is affected by sin. Our intellect, our emotion, our desire, and our hearts. The very center of our desires and decision-making process. Our goals, our motives, even our physical bodies. Paul says, I know that nothing good dwells within me that is in my flesh, Romans 7, 18. And and to the corrupt and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Their very minds and consciences are corrupted. Moreover, Jeremiah tells us that the heart is deceitful above all things and is desperately wicked. Right? So, why, why can we not do anything to please God? Because in our natures, we totally lack what? Spiritual good before God. In our natures, we totally lack spiritual good before God. 
in your natures, you can't do anything to please God. You're totally corrupt. What part of you is corrupt? Intellect? Will? Desire? Heart? Speech? Because it's, the, the nature corrupts it all. So you cannot please God because in your nature, when I'm stressing that, in your nature, there is nothing there to please God. In your nature. That nature corrupts everything. Everybody got that? All right, second. In our actions, we are totally unable to do spiritual good before God. In our actions, we are totally unable to do spiritual good before God. All right, so let's repeat the first one. In our natures, we totally lack spiritual good before God, right? All parts of us are corrupted by our nature. Every part of us is corrupted by our nature. Secondly, in our actions, we're totally unable to do spiritually good. This idea is related to the previous one. Not only do we as sinners lack any spiritual good in ourselves, but we lack the ability to do anything that will in itself please God and the ability to come to God in our own strength. Paul says those who are in the flesh cannot do what? Please God. Romans 8.8. 8. Um, Isaiah confirm, uh, uh, stated that all our righteous deeds are what? Filthy rags. Filthy rags. Isaiah 64.6. All our righteous deeds, all our righteous deeds are not able to please God. Even your righteous deeds are filthy rags. They're, they're polluted garments. All right, so let me state those two again. All right. So, because we're sinners and we inherit a sinful nature, we're unable to please God. And we're unable to please God in two ways. What are those two ways? In our natures, because we totally lack spiritual good before God. Everybody understands that? In our nature, what's our problem? Everything is corrupted. Everything is corrupted. Everything. Second, and our actions. And therefore, our actions cannot do what? We are totally unable to do spiritual good before God. You can't do anything spiritually good before God because your actions are tainted by your nature. Does everybody see how the two are linked? Polluted nature leads to polluted actions. Polluted nature, polluted actions make you in a position where you cannot do what? Please God. This is very critical, all right? All right, we're going to, man, I want to get to the next part. The next thing we're going to look at is actual sins in our life. So we've looked at what we've inherited, right? What do, what do we inherit? There's two things we inherit. Let's make sure we'll, we'll review and then we'll end. We inherit guilt and we inherit a, a nature. Okay, we, in, we inherit a nature or we inherit a guilt and we inherit a corrupted nature or a sinful nature. Right? That sinful nature is so bad and so pervasive and so corrupt, it puts us in a position that we cannot please God. And why can we not please God? Two things. Number one, in our nature, we totally lack the ability to please God. And in our actions, we cannot 
do spiritually good. We can't do anything that's spiritually good. So therefore, what position are we in? Helpless, hopeless, finished, done, unless something comes along and does something for us. Right? So when Romans 5.12 says we have all sinned, what does it mean that we've all sinned? Not, he's not, we haven't even gotten to the actual sins we commit yet. Right? What have we gotten to? We haven't even got to our actions. Our actions flow from our nature. We're guilty in Adam, and we're guilty in our nature. We haven't even gotten to any sins that you've ever commit or will commit. We've just gotten to your guilt in Adam and your sinful nature. This puts us in a... Now, if this is true, this puts us in a position that salvation has to be dependent upon what? God. Can't be dependent upon ourselves. Cannot be dependent upon ourselves. Any system that tries to say you have to do something, it makes no sense. Even the argument that, hey, if you're a Christian, you're going to do A, B, C, D, and I'm going to look at your actions, and if you don't, if you have these actions, that proves you're saved. Well, that's, that's uh, acting like the actions are, are somehow pure. The actions aren't even pure. They're tainted. Does that make sense? All right, so what will we look at next week? We've looked at the inherited part. What do we look at next week? The actual part. The actual sins. We've looked at the inherited sin, inherited guilt. Next week, we'll look at the actual. Now, does anyone have any questions about the inherited concept? Are you sure? Are you could pass a test if I give you one tonight? Uh, uh-oh. Nah. All of a sudden, you're not so sure. Okay. Okay. Yeah, now there'll be nobody here tonight, right? Does anybody have, Can you explain that concept to someone else? The inherited sin? Think you can explain that? You see how it connects to the the. the uh, here's what I want to I want to end with this on a very practical note because I don't know if everyone understands the significance of what we talked about in Sunday school, but this is significant because of this inherited guilt, right? Because of the inherited guilt, I want to make sure we understand from the moment of birth, from the moment of conception, you start living your life and you deep at a psychological level, you know something's not right. And the thing that's not right is your relationship with God because of your inherited guilt. You have a guilt there. You know you're guilty. Even though you can't put your finger on why you're guilty, you know you're guilty. You know something is wrong. And you spend your life doing everything other than fixing the root problem. The root problem is your relationship with God. Do We, we see this in the book of Ecclesiastes. He tries to find everything, to find purpose, to try to find meaning, to try to find joy. Solomon tries everything, and what does he end up? Vanity, vanity, meaningless, 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 and he's not happy and he's not content. And ultimately he realizes the only way to fix the problem is to turn to whom? To God. That's, everything, is out of, everything is out of whack in your life until you're right with your Creator. And this all stems from these two truths. You inherited guilt, so you're guilty, you're going to feel guilty, and you can't do anything about that guilt unless the Creator does something with it, because the guilt was, you inherited it. Right? And you may not like that, so I need something else. I need a righteousness to get rid of that guilt, to cover up that guilt. Yes? Okay. And then, there's something wrong in your very nature. And the, the fact that there's something wrong with your very nature, that nature makes you what? Not in right relationship with your God. So there's something inherently wrong, and the only way to fix that is something else. So, every, so all the problems you see in society are not a political issue. 
They're not a cultural issue. They're not an ideological issue. They're not a philosophical issue. They are a spiritual issue. All the problems in the world stem from the fact that everyone is guilty before their creator and everyone has a sinful and corrupt nature that impacts what part of their life? Every part that goes from mind, heart, very important, will, Got to stress the will because there's those who believe the will is free. Well, if the will is free, then that means you don't believe that sin corrupts every part of you, right? Where does the will arrive from? Inside of you. Well, where is the sinful nature? So how, how did the will not get impacted by the nature? It obviously had to. So that's why we have to have a God who chooses and overcomes the will because the will is bent against God. We are inherently messed up. And, the, and, and this is like Christianity 101, but you, don't, you can't imagine how Christians no longer operate from this perspective. They don't operate from it. They don't. I mean, what, a week ago, was it a week ago in Arizona? Where did, where did Trump go? A mega church to speak to the young people. What? Who would allow that? I wouldn't allow that in a billion years. No way. Like you can sit and listen, but you're not speaking. No no politician should ever speak from the pulpit unless they're preaching God's word. Period. Should never happen. That's wrong. That's sinful. That's ungodly. That's unbiblical. That's the church being prostituted out. Because the church bought into the idea that we can fix the world through all these other political means. No, you can't. Didn't Israel fix, figure that out? They had, they had someone, Israel had someone far better than Trump to write their laws. I know, legislative branch, executive branch, I understand that. Okay, for illustration purposes, okay. Guess what? Did that work out for him? No. Why? What was the problem? Wasn't having better laws or better policies. Wasn't bad about having better kings or worse kings. It was about their inherent sinful nature before their creator. And the church has completely given up the biblical theological ground that people died to establish for us to literally prostitute ourselves out for a political party and for, a poli- for a politicians to use us for their agenda. No, you can't use me for an agenda. Because you're the, the problem isn't pass a certain bill, pass a cer- get a certain person, and we'll fix culture. You can't fix culture that way. Culture has to be fixed by one individual becoming right with their creator through being born again and being saved, and then through the process of sanctification. But nobody like the church doesn't like that because that requires evangelism, prayer, fasting, and no, why do that? Well, we'll just we'll just sell ourselves over to the, the politician for a good price. We, we've, we've completely corrupted ourselves 
American Christianity has completely corrupted itself and has been completely hijacked. And I've stated that over and over and over and over and over and over. And it's like I'm preaching. Sometimes I feel like I'm preaching and nobody's listening, but it's a problem. And until the church wakes up, we're, we're finished. We're finished. And you can think, you can, you can vote any way you want. You go ahead and think you're going to fix the problem. You're not going to fix anything. The problem is a spiritual problem. Spiritual problem. Only 39%, I'm going to do a podcast on this maybe later today, only 39% of people in America right now believe human life has any sanctity at all. 39%. You're going to fix that politically? You can't. It's impossible. A politician can't fix that. Okay. A law can't fix that. Law can't say, hey, you better, you better believe. Now, I still want laws, even though those laws are ineffective because laws are there to punish and to try to stop. Okay, So I'm not making an argument against law. What I'm trying to say is the problem is spiritual. People are not going to believe life has any sanctity unless they believe in the beginning God created men and women in his image. That's a biblical theological problem. Does that make sense? All right. Yeah, that's... That's why we're covering this. This is, this, is, this is the problem. Look at your world. There's the problem. Okay? Don't look at the world and go, man, we get rid of those stinking Democrats. We can fix all of this. Yeah, yeah, come. Go for that. Just go and let me know how that worked out. No, it's still logical. It's still logical. All right. All right, Lord God, we come before you this morning. The, the importance of what we've just looked at cannot, I cannot overstate it in any way, shape, or form, you've given us literally the very foundational truth for us to be able to understand ourselves and the world around us. We, as Christians, everyone in this room, people around the world, we all need to repent for casting aside your truth and buying into the world's ideas, philosophies, and and, and trying to fix the world. We've bought into worldly concepts. That is a wisdom that does not come from above, but it's a, it's a wisdom that is earthly, that is sensual, that is devilish, and we need to repent of it. And I pray that you would get us back on a theological firm ground. And I ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said...